0: Good afternoon, everybody. Eddie Webb, and welcome to the new Media Lab here at Mesa Community College. Today, it is our honor and privilege to welcome Dr. Francis Canedo, our new Dean of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences. Following a national search, Dr. Canedo officially joins our college community as the administrative leadership team. Her responsibilities include coordinating the academic initiatives, leadership and management for instructions, promotion of student persistence, retention, success in collaboration with academic and student affairs administrators. She comes from Northeast State Community College in Tennessee, where she was the former dean, tenured uh, professor of Spanish served as an advisor of the College Gay Straight Alliance, Latinx Club, Drama Club, and served as the International Education Committee. We want to welcome you here. In your bio, it says you're, you're from Bolivia.
1: I am. Tell
0: me about life in Bolivia.
2: Well, before I start with that, I want to thank you for inviting me. It is my pleasure. I'm very excited to be here. Now, life in Bolivia. Bolivia is a land, landlocked country. So we do not have a coast and we have some issues with Chile because of that. You'll see it in the news. We're always fighting with them, but not me. Governments fight, not me. (laughs) But um, we have a wonderful wealth of nature and geography and fauna, flora, all the things. I lived in the middle of the country. It is called Cochabamba. That is my hometown. And it is in the valleys. We're surrounded by beautiful mountains. And after I graduated college, I moved to La Paz, which is one of the two capitals of Bolivia. We have two capitals. Uh, One is Sucre, and that is the historical capital. And La Paz is where the government sits. Um, So we have two capitals. My brother moved to this, to the other side of the country, Santa Cruz, which is the rainforest. And, you know, Bolivia has um, deserts. We have the largest salt desert in the world and it's wonderful to see. And we are right next to the Amazonian basin. So, you know, we have a little bit of everything.
0: Beautiful. Culturally speaking, What was the motivation to come to the United States?
2: So there was not a cultural motivation to come here. I think the motivation was a necessity. Um, Mm -hmm. I used to work for nonprofits that work with funds from the U.S. Agency for International Development. So what USAID does is goes to countries and provides money to nonprofits for, again, alternative alternative development, which is, all right, let me back up a little. Bolivia is one of the largest coca farming country in the world.
0: Oh, more than Colombia.
2: No, Colombia makes cocaine. Okay. Bolivia grows the coca leaf. Gotcha. But the coca leaf is also used for indigenous ceremonies. Uh, People of indigenous background use it every day. You know, they chew it, kind of like they chew tobacco over here. So it's a daily thing. So in Bolivia, they farm a lot of coca. Now, they make this thing called base paste through a process. Um, I couldn't tell you what the process is. But then that base paste is smuggled into Colombia, and they are the chemists that make the cocaine. So there's a huge influence of the DEA in Bolivia. And USAID works with the DEA, but they try to put money back in the country. So to change those coca crops into different crops, bananas, papaya, oranges, pepper, black pepper. So that's what USAID does. And I work for nonprofits that receive funds from them. In 2000, if I am not mistaken, no, 2004, we had another election. and. We had the first indigenous president in the country in this indigenous president. His name was, is Evo Morales. He was not a friend of the DEA or the United States. And the first thing that he did when he became president was to kick out the DEA and the nonprofits that worked with it. So I found myself without a job because of my. Educational background, um, finance. Um, one of the options I had was to work in a bank. And I didn't want to do that. That was just not for me. So um, my spouse and I, my spouse was an American citizen that grew up in Bolivia. So we made a decision to come here to the U.S. So it was more a necessity than an than intentional decision. So when we moved here, we needed to land somewhere. Uh, we landed where his maternal family is from, and that is Tennessee. It, it was supposed to be just for a short period of time until we got our feet wet, et cetera, et cetera. And then we ended up staying there for 15 years. And that's where I started working at Northeast State, and I worked there for 13 years.
0: I know this may seem like a silly question, mm-hmm. but does Bolivia have it print its own money and dollars or? Uh, you mentioned German being you know a colonized force what what is the currency in bolivia? Well, we
2: have the boliviano, so it's a bolivian peso it's um, so we have our own currency, and yes, we do trade in American dollars too so there's there's a lot of trade. I should have brought some of the money. I have some so yeah I, I can come and show you
0: well all of those dynamics you know um Create inherent uh, indigenous sovereignty. Interesting, when outside forces come in and decide—you know—they know what's best. Uh, so, yeah, I'm sure there's many, many. Oh, there's there's plenty. Very, yeah, a lot of layers and variables happening there that would. Anyway, hey, we're glad you made the journey. Well, thank and, you. Uh, you know, the uh, Tennessee is uh, smoke Smoky Mountains, right?
2: Yeah, the Smoky Mountains. Yeah. I. Lived at the foot of the Smoky Mountains. uh, Now, do you know about Dollywood? (laughs) (laughs) Have you heard about Dollywood? All right, so Dolly Parton is from Tennessee. She's from East Tennessee, and in her hometown, she created this amusement park, and it's called Dollywood. You know, she's she's really good. She, you know, she she has this project where she gives books to every children between one and five, I want to say. And monthly you get a book for those children. So, you know, she's, she's a good example of, of Tennessee.
0: Yeah. The reason I was laughing is I actually this morning got up and I was looking for some music to listen to while I was doing my thing. And uh, I've, I grew up listening to the Bee Gees and uh, their Barry Gibb just putting out an album with Dolly Parton his song words and it's a great harmony piece but at the end of it when they're getting ready to wrap the song she says uh, you know it's sunday i think i want to go to church and she said church chicken that is <laughs> i thought that was i thought that was pretty good oh well, dolly
2: dolly's yeah. a hoot yeah have you met her i have not yeah. i have not had the honor oh, okay. to
0: meet dolly She's quite an icon, quite a talent. I mean, I think she wrote some of Elvis Presley's first big hits. Oh, she she was a songwriter, yeah. And she's a a, a strong woman, businesswoman who was uh, intelligent enough back in the day to keep the rights to her songs, which made her a very very wealthy uh, enterprise. You know.
2: And what is nice about that is that she gives back to her community.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good, good folks. Good country people. So, Bolivia, Tennessee, what attracted you to Mesa Community College?
2: All right. So, after COVID or during COVID, I was intentional about looking for jobs that would be challenging. I did not feel challenged at Northeast State anymore, and I needed needed a change. So, I started applying to positions and started looking for positions a little more intentionally than I had done before. For a while there, I was just throwing CVs here and there, you know, throwing pasta at the wall Mm -hmm. and seeing what would stick. And again, I don't think I was intentional about it. So at the beginning of the year, I became a lot more committed to looking for a job outside Tennessee. And, you know, I had several interviews. I had a couple of options. And I remember having a call from MESA and scheduling an interview. In my first interview, I want to say there were at least twelve people in the committee, and I remember coming out of that interview, and I turned to my partner and I said, "That's where I want to go," just because um, there was a lot more diversity, and the questions that they asked were, or created a curiosity in me about the culture of the college and through the interview process, I became a lot more excited about coming here. And then, you know, I got the job and I, I, I am very glad I'm here. Yeah, well, we're,
0: we're happy to have you. And I guess the famous saying, when you come to Arizona, it's a dry heat. So. It is a dry heat.
2: <laughs> I keep saying that it's different. I, you know, I, La Paz does not have heat, but it's dry yeah. and I like it.
0: Yeah. You know Mesa Community College. I've been here twenty-one or twenty-two years, and I'm so so grateful. Because, twenty-one
2: years is how old I am.
0: <laughs> got me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I left the university because I wanted to really teach. You know, I really and and I wanted to teach students from my neighborhood. Like I was teaching at a prestigious university in California. I had a corner office, life was good for me. But I would pull up in my pickup truck and my students would pull up in like, you know, Porsches and Corvettes and nothing, nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm happy for them and all of that. But I wanted to, I wanted to serve a population that comes from the neighborhoods that I come from, the zip codes, the working poor, the, you know, the first year, first time college students. I really, really wanted to throw in with them. And, and I'm so glad I did looking back. You know, I've got to, you know, along the way, I've picked up some other degrees. So I've got, you know, to keep my mind in research. And I do love research and I love being around other researchers and talking and learning. But uh, as far as the teaching goes, my connection is with the, with our students here, you know, so just for our listeners, we have a panel of faculty and staff. And when we do our podcasts, we, uh, we pull up uh, a lot of questions and then we rank them. Generally, we like to stick around about 13 questions seems to be the magic number. But one of our first questions from one of our faculty members is, what do you see as the mission of community colleges?
2: Well, you... I was about to interrupt you because that was actually a question I wanted to answer. Um, So I slipped into academia. That was never something I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to be a finance person, a project manager in uh, projects in my country. I wanted to get involved in nonprofit work. Um, I also actually thought about going to the Middle East and do project management over there. That was very interesting to me. Um, But because we had to move to the US, Um, for financial reasons. Um, We landed in Jonesboro, Tennessee, population 5,000, right next to Johnson City, Tennessee, population 80,000. But that's where East Tennessee State is. So when I was finding uh, my path, and my path was really hard because I was this brand-new immigrant into a 90% Caucasian town, with this foreign degrees that nobody understood, it said finance, but they didn't know with, whether finance was the same here or there. It is. So it was difficult for me to, to open a path. So one day I poked my head into the foreign languages department at East Tennessee State, and Dr. Jerome Moyeli from Ghana was the chair of foreign languages. and. We had a conversation. I said, you know, I think I want to do some translation interpretation for a while until I find a job. And he asked me, do you have a master's? And I said, yes. And you're a native, spe- native speaker? And I said, yes. And he said, do you want to teach a class? And I said, uh, okay. And that's how I landed in academia. So I started teaching Spanish. I taught several semesters at, at East Tennessee State as an adjunct faculty, which was hard because Uh, adjunct faculty don't get paid enough. So I had a couple of side jobs while I was teaching adjunct. um, And then a position opened at East Tennessee State, oh, sorry, at Northeast State. And I jumped on that position and I was, I had the skill to do it because there were not that many native speakers in town. So that actually opened a humongous door for me to enter academia. One that I would probably not have had if I would have been in a larger city. So that's how I made my path into academia. And there are no such thing as community colleges in Bolivia. You jumped straight into university. So I had to learn what the purpose of community college was. And I saw the difference between the students that I taught at the university and the students that I taught at the college and it became my purpose to work in community colleges and to serve those students because I could see the change in the passion these students had for learning because they were not, and I, want, I'm, I don't mean this word in any other way, but it's just a privilege to be able to go from high school into a university. It's a big process, but there are other people that might not be as privileged where they have to take care of their family, they have to go to work, and then they come back to college. Um, adult students, non-traditional students, and also students that could not pay for university for the first two years, and that's, that was a concept that I didn't have. Coming from Bolivia, but then I realized what that concept was, and that's where I wanted to work. And you really have to have a passion for community colleges to stay here. Um, that's right. Like you said, you know, you had a, a corner office at a prestigious university, but that's not the same as teaching community college students. Right. And the mission of our mission is to open the doors to everybody to have an
0: education some parallels there for me you know i got into teaching uh late late in life but i actually was at a a pretty good uh contracting company in tulsa oklahoma and was working i had these guys working for me i told this guy uh washington to we were on a job site and i said hey man you need to go get this stuff take my truck you know take and go get all this stuff and he left, and he came back. and He didn't have the stuff. And I'm like, I got a concrete truck coming. You know, it's gonna be here any minute. There's like three or four of us here. You gotta go get this stuff. Jumped in my truck, left. Came back. Doesn't have the stuff. And this time, when he walks up to me, he has tears in his eyes. He's a grown man. And uh, I used to help out. We used to. There used to be a a work center for American Indians in Tulsa. I, there, there still is, called Sally's, and a lot of native guys would show up for day work and i'd got to know some of these guys and i'd hire him sometimes whether i could afford to or not but um anyway when he came uh, back he had tears in his eyes and he said to me hey brother he said i can't read i said what he said i i can't read so i don't know the i can't read the street signs I don't know how to get down the street you want me to go to. I don't know the store, and I can't read this list. And it was so overwhelming to me that I went home and bought a chalkboard and I started teaching in my backyard. Homeless guys would come over to my house. And, and what I found out is I could barely read myself. <laughs> you know, I was like, I was really far behind. And that's how I started t- originally taking classes now here's a here's a real crazy thing so i started at the community college in tulsa oklahoma and it was the best experience of my life and then in the writing course i got put in these remedial classes where you couldn't even get a grade that's how unprepared i was but these teachers at the community college were amazing right so i got i finished the community college I went and got a bachelor's degree. I moved back home to California. I got a bachelor's degree from Chico State. I'd written some stuff that got published. I got a scholarship to go to ASU to get my master of fine arts, and this is a, probably a ten-year period at least, eight, because I'm working too and raising folks and doing life. And on the day that I graduated from ASU, uh, no one from my family could make it over here for various reasons. So I was sitting on uh, my apartment over on uh, university and rural and I'm watching all these families go to graduation. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. I drive downtown Tempe. And when I get there, standing on the corner is Washington. 10 years later from Tulsa, Oklahoma, standing on the corner, and I had uh, my girlfriend with me, and I was actually telling her this story about how I got, how I started going back to school. And I pulled up, haven't seen a guy in over 10 years. I pulled up, I roll down my window, and he looks at me, and he goes, Ed? And I said, what are you doing here, man? And he walks in, he looks in the car, he looks at me, he looks at her, and he looks at me and goes, I can't read. And we started laughing, and then I started crying. It was amazing, you know, like this, this journey of becoming a teacher and a student and, and what it all means at the community college for me is all, you know, it's all interconnected, real deep. Anyway, you know, it's, it's I love the Maybe that'll be our next uh, press that we put out as people's journey to education, you know, our real journeys. Because uh, I think it's pretty, I think your story is really inspirational. You know, and that you stuck with it, you know, and you kept moving forward. And here you are. You're a dean here of one am. of the biggest community colleges, if not in the, in the United States, if not in the world. You have your the opportunity to change thousands and thousands of student lives for the better. And, I you know,
2: what, one good. of those things is I miss the classroom. Yeah. Um, so anyone that goes into administration would tell you that. Yeah. But especially for me, teaching foreign languages, um, seeing those students have that aha moment when, when they really understand something, uh, that is precious to me. Yeah. I remember having... So my, my previous dean, he had a little conference room right next to his office, and he was having a little catered, not too fancy, but just a little catered... Um, Meeting with the English department. English departments are always the biggest. And I remember coming in and start, you know, grabbing some food. And jokingly, he asked me, you know, what are you doing here? This is for the English um, instructors. And I said, no one in this room teaches more English than I do. (laughs) Because I need to teach all the students, you know, we need to start from verb conjugation, what an adjective is, what a noun is. So no one in this classroom
0: teaches more English than I do. <laughs> That's good. There we have it. Hey, hey, what do you think the biggest cultural differences between the, the, the community colleges in Tennessee and Arizona? Have you noticed any significant differences in the systems?
2: The systems, yes. How we work in the classroom, there's really not much difference, right? Now... This college is a lot larger, and you have a new media lab, and you have an art department that is humongous. You have a wonderful theater. Um, You have a journalism program. Um, You know, uh, the cultural science program, you know, programs are a lot bigger, and they are more diverse in what they teach. So that is phenomenal. Yeah. So so we work the same, just at a different Scale. scale. Right. System-wise, we're very different. Oh, really? Very different. So we have, I keep saying we, but I always speak in the we terms. Um, Back in Tennessee, we had a system that managed the six public universities, 13 community colleges, and 27 uh, centers for advanced technologies. Tennessee Centers for Advanced Technologies, the TCATs. And um, a couple of years ago, the universities went free range, like chickens. Um, they decided to go free range because they wanted to compete for more. Income. It, it, yeah, uh, investment for, for research. So the Tennessee Board of Regents, which was our system, stayed with the community colleges and with the TCATs. And because the 13 community colleges are statewide, we're pretty pretty far away from each other. So I worked at Northeast State, and it took me eight hours to go to Southwest Community College. So it's not like here in Maricopa, where in one county we have 10 colleges. Uh, so the system worked a little different. Um, and now I'm just learning the, the ins and outs of the system here. So that's, you know, that's, uh, that's new to me. And I keep complaining about the amount of acronyms. <laughs> That's what the former
0: president said. It took him his whole time he was here to figure out all the acronyms. All the
2: acronyms. <laughs> yeah. And people keep offering me their lists. Yeah. Uh, but I found that the, this very comprehensive list and I printed it and it was 26 pages. That's hilarious. I mean, that, that is the only complaint I have yeah. right now, that I have not learned all the acronyms because there are so many.
0: Well, I you'll probably learn to appreciate them as time passes. <laughs> I bet you'll, I hope you'll probably I create some of your own. In fact. Oh,
2: i definitely will. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, that's um, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I'm going to start challenging uh, a little bit. Is you know, our funding. Uh, you know, we're accountable to the state legislature because we have our own tax service uh, from the taxpayers that fund our school or at least upwards of 60% or so. And there was a whole uh, legislative body of compliance there about you know, what, how we would spend the money and manage the money and all of that sort of stuff. And then we have the universities that used to be plugged into that that did the same thing when Michael Crow came along and broke away from that funding, but he really wanted to get rid of the compliance restraints so he could find endowment and money. He's built an empire. With us, we're still, you know, we, we couldn't survive without state funding, for sure, in the, in the way that we operate. But people talk about the system, and my perspective is it's about people, right? There are these operating systems, but it shouldn't be, you know, the system is about people. People create innovation. Like people make relationships with students and develop curriculum. And we always have to remember that when we talk about the system. You know, yeah. the system benefits, I think, a lot of the bureaucracy that that we have. But as far as running, you know, the day-to-day, what our product is, and our product is an excellent teacher in a great classroom with, you know, motivated students. This is our product. A lot of times in the first few months of an administrative position are spent learning about people and culture at an institution. What have you learned? What would you like to know more about? And what direction would you like to take your areas?
2: All right, that's, that's a long question, but let's, let's start. What have I learned? Some of the acronyms. I just learned about the FMS, HCM, those, those are fabulous, and I need to work on those. So I have learned how to use those and that has been um, pretty good. Uh, would you like to know more about it? Yes, I would, I would like to know more about that and how systems work. SIS has been a challenge in twenty five live yeah uh yeah, that's that's been a challenge too, so I'm still learning on those.
0: um you don't just naturally know how to work this operating system with a hundred different <laughs> buttons, except on I, I don't page. I mean
2: it does not come naturally <laughs> yeah it, it, especially coming from a completely different right. uh, system <laughs> um I, I thought that some things were gonna be familiar yeah. Uh I was wrong
1: right
0: <laughs>
2: I was very wrong, um In what direction would I like to take the areas? I think uh, you used a really good word, innovation. I want not only innovation, I want collaboration. Um, I think as departments and divisions for that matter, we tend to silo each other. I think I was having a conversation with you a couple of weeks ago and you were talking to me about the the work that you wanted to do and how you wanted more students to to come through the media lab. And I started asking you, have you partnered with this one? Have you partnered with that one? And I think I mentioned the honors group. And I said, well, have you partnered with the honors group? And you said, that's a good idea. And so you know, trying to pull people into meeting new groups and actually collaborating, I know it's hard. We teach all day, right? We teach students. um, We want to do things with other groups, but sometimes we don't have time in between. We're in committees, we serve, uh, you know, I serve in this committee or that other committee and it it takes time. But one of the things that I want our departments to do is to make time to sit with each other and have conversations about how we can partner and and do a lot more collaborative work
0: yeah and i was and then the next day i i, I didn't want to this was my first time meeting you so i wanted to that be a, day. a good listener um but you know then we say we have this big scholarship in which we work with multi-departments um we're now working with the dei council we have faculty partnership the other acronym yeah the, yeah that's right the other acronym, and. um yeah, I think that's what it's about. You know, I I really uh, I want you to come back in the spring uh, because I would I really want to talk more about silos. Uh, but I think, I think in fairness, you know, we need a little more time to understand the full perspective of them, because I I've been writing about that quite a bit and reading about you know motivation around silos. And a lot of it is resources. You know, we have to fight for crumbs, why other people have a piece of the cake. You know, there's a par for faculty. For six years, you have to prove yourself. And when there's limited resources, that's why people get sort of territorial over things because they're trying to survive. And that's sort of par punishment I mean, I'm all about like, accountability because we, we, need to be, we need to be doing that. But I, I think we have to, if we're going to ask people to live in that environment or be accountable, we need to provide the resources they need, right, to grow. Uh, it's taken a pandemic, to, a global pandemic, to actually get faculty and staff more involved with media Canvas, the new media labs. Everywhere I go now, fa- faculty who wouldn't before are doing podcasts. They're doing YouTube lectures. They're doing mo- you know what I mean. And what we have been trying to get going. Well, and we the had CTL to learn. Get going now. It took a pandemic to push everybody over the line. We had, had to know?
2: start you know learning about this new ways of meeting. That's right. Zoom, WebEx, and now we have Google Meet. Yeah. I had not worked uh, on the Google platform you know except for my gmail that i checked every once in a while so now this is another new thing that i have to learn it keeps me on my toes um we had to move all these classes to an online uh format and how do we teach some classes that we have taught for 15 years that you know it becomes it becomes super easy to go into the, the classroom and just do the thing that you do semester after semester, you, you may change a thing here or change a thing there, you know, something that would work better because, because you learn with uh, every semester. But to go from teaching that class face to face to having to teach that class on a screen or having to teach that class fully online. And how do you, how do you engage those students? And how do you teach in a way that is completely different? You have to learn to Adapt and to change and to pivot uh, when something needs to be fixed. I think of myself, and I hope that people can can see this in my, in me. If something is not working, I am all up for pivoting and finding something that works. I don't keep trying and trying and trying the same thing. What I hope people to see in me, because this is something I see in myself, is pivoting pivoting when something is not working if something is not working let's change it if something didn't work this semester let's not try to just you know band-aid it let's try a completely different thing and and make sure you know that we are learning from our experiences it keeps us young keeps our brain moving And I think that's what the acronyms and the new systems are doing for me. They're making my brain work a lot, which is great.
0: Yeah. It's been a real validation, I think, for almost all the work that we do here. And I know for the CTL folks, because when you come back, you know, our president is making all kinds of videos and podcasts. Even our uh, one of our senior faculty person at the Faculty Association and the FEC and all that—all of these people who, res- who were resisting technology now all use technology, or have to. And they and they and it's not because they wanted to; it's because they had to. We had no option. There was that's right, and so it validates what we're trying to do. So we're trying to say, if if you all are using this for your professional life, well, then we should be teaching this to our students. But we teach at a very high level. I have a film degree, you know all this stuff. Keegan is one of the best editors in the valley, for sure. And, you know, we're teaching them to do high-level stuff. So, again, it's that sense of, uh, you know, change.
2: It's it's rewarding uh, working in our community college because, we again, we see that spark. When a student comes into a media lab like this or goes into a theater that, um, you know, that can it over four hundred people and I, and I keep bragging on, on on that you know the art department and and what they do please other departments it's not that I am not bragging about you but these are the things that come to my mind right now yeah yeah um you know and, and we have the level of, of equipment to teach our students with it um, that is phenomenal I keep oohing and eyeing at, at the type of technology and spaces we have
0: yeah it's uh, you said spark and that's one of our main things that we teach is spark adobe spark <laughs> it's a really popular uh,
2: so you know yeah. i just keep taking pictures of certain things that we have on campus yeah. and texting my former colleagues and <laughs> letting them know that um, a little salt a little salt yes
0: <laughs> we can get some grits and. uh Did you you eat grits? grits.
2: Hey, I I went to the supermarket and I got some the other day (laughs) because I like to make shrimp and (laughs) grits.
0: Do you use uh, jalapenos in there? Yes, I do. That's what I do. Of course. Uh, I
2: put jalapenos in my grits.
0: So uh, uh, another question here. What are some of the ways you promoted inclusion and equity in Tennessee? And how could you apply that experience here at MCC? Another hard question.
2: So, the part of Tennessee in which I lived is 90% Caucasian. Uh, There's a very uh, small group of Latinx uh, people. The majority of the Latinx groups in Tennessee are farm workers. So, they are people in the farms, Um, tomatoes, uh, strawberry farmers, uh, the Closer to Knoxville, you go, um, mushroom farmers. Uh, a lot of the, the Latinx folk work in the chicken factory. So every time I would walk around, you know, they, they, there was always this assumption that I, that I was a farm worker. And there's absolutely n- nothing wrong with that, but people could not understand that someone like me would have a degree. and that I could teach at a college. So that was a new education for them. So I think inclusion was also a part of educating the people around you about the capabilities of people from different uh, backgrounds. In 2010, I realized that there was no LGBTQ group on campus. It didn't take me long, but in 2010, I decided to do something about it. And I went to the Student Life office and I said, you know, can I have the paperwork to start a club? And the Student Life person said, what type of club are you thinking about starting? And I said, an LGBTQ club. And he said, you know, I cannot tell you what to do, but I don't know if that's going to be a good idea. And I said, well, I like Bad idea, so let's try it. Um, And you know, you had to have two signatures of faculty members that wanted to co sponsor the club, and you needed at least 10 signatures of students. And they told me that it was going to be hard to find those. Um, So I stood up outside one of the fairs that we had on campus, one of the big events that we had at the courtyard. Um, And by the end of the day, I had something like 200 signatures from students wanting to open an LGBTQ club and just from the faculty in my department in the social studies department I had 45 faculty members signing. So there was no way that they could say no to my club. So you know I took the paperwork to Student Life and they said oh well you you have a charter now so you have a club. And we started doing a lot of um, events on campus. This was a funny story. I said we're gonna do a film festival, so we're gonna show some some movies, uh, with LGBTQ themes. Can you believe that a person in student life a- asked me if we were gonna show uh, gay porn? This this was actually a question that I was asked, and I said, "Uh, n- no, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna show pictures that or films that." depict LGBTQ people. Do you know that those exist? But that was that was that was very interesting that that was the concept.
0: Yeah. That the level of
2: uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean I I laugh now, yeah. Yeah. but at the time I I just couldn't understand. And you know, we started doing several events that would open some eyes. So we had a Drag show on campus, and there were some arms raised, but we framed it as you need to understand what type of art drag shows are. You know, it's not just about cross dressing. That's not what it is. It's an art. You know, the the makeup, the cloth making, the the lip singing, because there's a lot of lip singing. Um, it's just an art form, and we made it really early on campus so that students could go. And we opened it to the community. And of course, we made it PG as it is. So we had a lot of kids come to the the drag show. And I think that opened a lot of people's eyes to what we could do on campus. You know, if our theater students can put uh, makeup on and we celebrate them for that, why couldn't we celebrate drag shows? Now, that's not the only thing we did. Again, we had several other events on campus, but I those are the ones that I got really excited about because those were the ones that would push, you know, the line a
0: little. So you sort of connected these dots between uh, Me- Mexican farm workers? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, Central to- American, not, not yeah. only uh, Mexican, but Central American.
0: Mm-hmm. So this... Population of the of the labor workforce there in Tennessee to the LGBTQ community around what was your was was because you felt again there needed to be a voice for people that had no voice.
2: Yes, that was the. We also had uh, Farm Workers Awareness Week. So with the Latinx uh, group, we did Farm Workers Awareness Week, uh, which is in March, celebrating uh, Cesar Chavez's birthday. Oh, and I have to tell you about when I met Dolores Huerta, but I digress. Um, So we would we would do poster boards about how the farm workers, how much money they made and how they would get paid by the bushel. Right. Or um, the hours that they need to work. So once we made we actually made a strawberry field at East Tennessee State and uh, we asked the students to pick strawberries without damaging them. On their knees, and it is hard. I love that idea. Yes, and then we, you know, we filled a big bucket with tomatoes. Well, not tomatoes. We put heavier things in there, and we told them that you know farm workers needed to lift these things hundreds of times a day in order to uh, to work in the fields. And we showed pictures of pesticide poisoning. That occurred to, to farm workers and, you know, the damage uh, that cutting celery and um, onions, you know, people would have accidents. And we showed also um, Edward R. Morrow had a wonderful documentary about farm workers in the 50s, 40s, 50s. And so we would show that documentary. And the only difference between the group in the documentary, in the group of people that work in the farms now is race. So in the 40s, it was African-American groups that would work in the farms. And now it's Latinx groups that work in the farms. Even the amount that we pay today is closer to
0: that in the 40s. Yeah, there. I, every year I show Food Inc. Have you seen? Food yes, Inc.? It I have. features the chicken farmers. And I think it's maybe Tennessee or Arkansas. Yeah, there's...
2: There's both I think on on footing
0: in the pork industry, yeah that's that's my family we're we're farm workers. I grew up uh, working with my grandfolks and stuff out in the orchards and uh, they all you know picked cotton and potatoes and we lived in they lived they I did it they my grandparents and them when they came from Oklahoma lived in the migrant labor camps and stuff and that's a I actually got to shake. Cesar Chavez's hand. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. Those are my people, you know, I'm real proud. I'm real proud of that. Well, that's, that's fantastic. You, you'll, uh, you'll have many, many opportunities to work with those communities here. I know one of our faculty or a a student life tried to do a show here and, and I, I don't, I don't know all of the details, but I know that it, I think it didn't happen over security concerns uh, or that was the rationale or or whatever. Uh, I'm going to follow up on that.
2: Okay. And if we could show uh, that Edward R. Murrow uh, documentary, uh, I own it. So, (laughs) so I'll, I'll work on that. But let me tell you about the time I met Dolores Huerta because I, so Dolores Huerta was Cesar Chavez's right hand. Oh, okay. She worked in the fields um, gathering signatures for, uh, for the um, grape farm worker movement. And you probably have seen the picture because yeah. it is iconic. She's standing on top of a truck holding a sign that says, Huelga. I mean, I am sure you have seen this uh, picture. Yeah. And, and so my degrees of separation to Cesar Chavez are, you know, it's one person because I met uh, Dolores Huerta and the same with Bobby Kennedy because because Bobby Kennedy was in California and he is the one that came and helped break Cesar Chavez's fast and uh, so Dolores Huerta is in the picture where Bobby Kennedy and um, Cesar Chavez are sitting after his, his strike and I was at a conference, it is the Time to Thrive conference, that it's from the Human Rights Campaign. And I was in Portland, Oregon, that's where it was. And I woke up early at the hotel. I went down to have breakfast at the, at the event breakfast. And then I went to, to, to the hall where a lot of the organizations that were supporting the event Um, had their tables and you could get goodies. So I was up in, you know, pretty early trying to grab some goodies for my students. And I was at the Dolores Huerta Foundation table and I was checking things out, you know, because I had followed her for a while. And I hear this voice behind me and my brain goes, no, it can't be. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to turn around and Dolores Huerta is going to be there. And I did. I turned around and I totally went uh fan girl! I started shaking, and I'm like, "Oh my god! Can I take a picture with you?" So <laughs> that's my that's my moment meeting Dolores Huerta.
0: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. You know, I, I wrote a I wrote a post a blog this morning about. It seems like every day I wake I wake up. There's more and more women taking uh, on the front line of a lot of uh, activism. We have a former student from right here, uh, Nylan Pike who is uh, um, all over the news, you know? Huge, huge, huge uh, activists right here at uh, San Carlos Apache on the copper mine. I mean, her picture was on a, a huge magazine this morning that I saw, and then Winona LaDuke uh, standing up for water rights in Minnesota. Uh, she's facing some jail time, it sounds like. But you see more, that could be another theme that we do is women, you know, women in, in the front lines. Right. Cause <laughs> it was on the, yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, yeah. Cause back in the day it was men, but it was the women around them that really got the real work done. Right. I think that'd be kind of a cool topic too. It would. Um, one of the questions that, uh, somebody sent in here was around the first year experience. For students because this is a, you know, a cornerstone of the community college, and the question is, um, what kind of resources, tools, or knowledge uh, do our students need to be provided with to be successful? Long question.
2: Long question, but the first thing is understanding that if students come to a community college with a purpose, and that purpose is to... You know get a certificate get a degree in order to start working right uh you know some of them may have aspirations of going to the university or grad school but when they start here they start with the idea of you know i'm gonna get my 60 credits and we're gonna make a decision after that so when they come and Many of them may be, you know, first generation students, so they cannot get help from their parents to navigate the school and the paperwork and the admissions process and financial aid, et cetera. Et cetera. So, what it, starting in that process, it, the process needs to be clear, and we need to help them. We need to help them navigate that. That, but that's that's another story. That's another podcast. But as faculty members and uh, uh, as academic affairs, we need to show students on that first year that college is not scary, that college is a welcoming space. And we need to teach them, and I'm air quoting here, how to college. So (laughs) that uh, first year experience is, how do I college? College is a verb. So. When I go into my first year English class and I haven't had developmental writing because, you know, I I did not do well in high school or I I did not test well because I have test anxiety. So how do I understand and how does my instructor make me understand that writing is important for the rest of the things that I need to do? If I'm just going to a classroom and I tell my students, hey, we're doing um, this type of essay, then we're going to write a, a comparative essay, and at the end of the class, we're going to do a research paper. We need to explain uh, our students why we're doing that. What is the purpose of writing a, a research paper? You know, and how is that going to help me in the future? Because it's, it comes to the, to the core of what we do at the community college or in academia generally. You need to learn how to write. You know, you need to have a thesis. You need to have, you know, a conclusion on your paper. And you need to know what your sources are and how to get those sources. When you're learning how to find those sources, you also need to teach the students how to use a library. And the librarians, I always say, they are going to be your best friends throughout college the librarians are going to teach you how to find those resources online because you cannot use Wikipedia. That is not a reliable source. Or something that says history.com, not because it has history in the name, uh, does that mean that it's a reliable source? So we need to explain to our students what the objective of the class is. What are we trying to teach them? Uh, When they go into a communication class, uh, we need to explain to them why they have to learn this. And one of the things employers ask is for um, people that are coming out of community college or uh, university is that they need soft skills. And those soft skills is what we teach in the classroom. We teach the students how to think critically, how to put things from brain to hand to paper, um, How to pay attention to to the sources that we're using. So, in that first year, those explanations are what are going to help our students move along. What tools do they need? Well, the tools that are required by the classes that they are taking, right? So, if they're taking a writing class, they need whatever tool they need to write. If it's a pencil, well they need a pencil. If they need a blue book, well they need that blue book and we need to be able to provide that for them. If they need a computer um, and they don't have a computer at home or they don't have reliable internet at home, how do we make it easier and how do we take down those barriers for our students to do well? You know, if they cannot access or they don't know how to use their computer, You know, do we have a student learning center where they can go and be like, hey, I have no idea what this Canvas thing is? How do I use it? Where do I find my things? And that's part of, you know, what the library does. That's part of what the instructor does. So breaking those barriers is the most important thing. And also, once again, helping students understand why we're teaching them what we are teaching them. And what we do in the arts, humanities, and social sciences are the basis of of that learning um we are the core of what the students do uh you know i don't want to talk bad about math and science but uh you know those are fewer of the general education requirements not less important let me let me be clear about that but you know they're fewer if the students are just looking for a general education uh, in one of those uh fois another
0: acronym. I agree. I've talked to many business leaders, and that's what they want. They want employees that can critically think, you know, that can organize, and and more and more. Uh, As this uh, lines to our next question, which is my favorite question, Uh, I did not write it, so I was glad to see that it showed up. More and more, when a student has come out of college and looking for a job, if they can create a PSA, if they can use multimedia another acronym what's a PSA? public service announcement right uh, okay thank you <laughs> in a, a video if they can make a an advertisement video either you know using premiere final cut or illustrator or InDesign, or any of those kinds of mediums if they have a reasonably you know sound skill set they're going to move to the front of the class immediately and that's why you know this next question um in the lectures that our students do for Adobe, we call it the debate is over. Like, if you're not on board with introducing new media into your common core curriculum, then, you know, you need to catch up. It's because it's it's not the students. The students already know they need that. A lot of them are really proficient. It's really the faculty catching up with uh, what is happening. And, and again, COVID has forced people into these mediums but the question the, the faculty have here for you is what types of innovation have you been a part of and are passionate about
2: so let's start at little changes that need to happen uh, at a school start from the basics i used to teach the self defense classes for women on campus and i went to Student Life, and I said, I want to put these posters in, inside the stalls in the women's bathrooms. Uh, can, you, can you please, you know, give me more posters? And there was this uh, answer that was, you can't. And I said, what well, why can't I? It's policy. And I said, uh, can you show me the policy? And it was not policy. It was practice. They had the practice of not allowing, I I don't know what the reason was, posters inside the stalls. So I said, well, there's no policy. There's nothing that tells us that we cannot do this. We're going to put posters inside the stalls. And we were able to do that. So then Student Life realized that that was a good idea, putting posters inside the stalls, because you had an audience right there that was going to read what it was on the stalls. So Student Life started using those little things, um, those, those plastic picture frames and to put information inside the stalls. So that's not necessarily innovation, that's just seeing things in a different way and asking questions. Is this policy or is this practice? And if it's just a practice, have we gotten too used to it? And we cannot see beyond that anymore. So innovation comes when we start asking questions. Okay, why are we doing this this way? And it does not need to take a global pandemic. It shouldn't have to take a global pandemic for us to see outside what we, what we do. So innovation needs to come from the needs of students. When we see students needing a new thing, needing a new skill, that's where we need to come up with ways to teach what students need. So, you, you, Eddie, look at this lab. You decided that there was a need for students to learn to do things. And there wouldn't be this space if we wouldn't find that students needed a certain type of skill, right? And you mentioned a little ago if you don't have the tools to do the work, and when, when we want to go out, in the workforce then we're going to be at the back of the line if if we have the skills then we're going to move to the front of the line so what creates innovation is not falling into what's the word that i'm looking for
0: bad habits
2: thank you yeah. and two yeah. or you know traditions, traditions or yeah. practices that right. do not allow us to see outside it yeah. right what am i Excited about when we talked innovation is using the small resources that we have and making them work for our students. Yeah. So if we have again, you know, technology, a pencil is technology. So how do we use that pencil in order to teach students what they need for for the workforce? Right. If it's a pencil that you need, well, let's make, uh you know, let's make something up with this pencil that it's not just writing in order to teach our students what they need to know.
0: Yeah. Excellent. We have been through four presidents, three chancellors, a couple of provosts, and we have been so fortunate, you know, so far that every single one of them have came over here and visited this and, and especially in our summer institutes and see what we're doing and the products we're doing. But, uh, Four presidents ago walked down here, and he's the one that really opened the door he said i don't understand and know exactly what you're doing, but keep doing it right and we just we built it in a community of students and um you know it's just it's we've been really fortunate to have people that even though maybe they didn't have the skill set or in a, a personal experience in certain ways, they didn't put up too many roadblocks. And that's what, you know, that's what it's all about is creating opportunities for people. Because like I say at the beginning of this, it's not about the system. It's about people. People make changes and communities make changes. And I'm very encouraged by meeting you today and our conversation I think everybody respects that people have a job to do. You know, And when you're in administration, I think faculty and staff people understand your contract to be uh, a steward of our resources and stuff and the obligations you're under. But as you've just said, that doesn't mean we have to fall into the how it's always been done category. That's
2: my pet peeve.
0: Yeah. It's time. It's time for younger folks to show up. I was at ASU, and, and I'm sure. I mean, you probably don't know this. ASU used to be and under a uh, before Crow Glady. I can't remember. I can't remember his name right now. Glady Moore. What was his name? I don't know. look it up. <laughs> uh, anyway, the president of uh, ASU, great guy, great guy. I was teaching there. Wonderful man. And when Crow came on the scene and they got rid of the the funding uh, from the state so that he could start really get some real endowment money going into that university, one of the things that he did was he shook up a lot of privilege on campus, old tradition, right? People that had been riding the system for a long time. It was very, very disruptive for faculty. You know, people today are still carry some of that with them. but. What he did, what he did, was he identified his product, and he made that the priority. Excellent teachers, teaching excellent curriculum in relevant disciplines that would build our country. Laddie, what is it? Laddie Coor. Laddie Coor, man, I apologize, Laddie, if, if you if you happen to hear this because you were one of my favorite presidents of all time. Just the sweetest guy, man. Really great guy, but didn't have that. What what crow had, which was to identify the product beyond just sort of a easy going place. You know, he's built an empire over there. Some people hate the guy. Some guys, people love the guy. So, you know, all of that, all of that stuff, and that's what people like him do, right? But what he did was identified his product. And that's what I want us to do. Like for some, for years I've asked, I'm not sure people actually understand what our product is, you know? And also like enrollment numbers, like we're up, we're down. You hear this, like our funding model is so outdated. We're up, we're down, we're up, we're down, this, this. We need to be consistent year in and year out. We can't be reactionary like this from semester to semester to semester. We're a billion dollar operation, we need some sound consistency on that. We can't just keep doing this, well, you're up, you know, up, down. But I've asked for years, what's your number? Tell me what your number is. What, how many students do you want here to make this flush, to make it consistent? What? No, no. You, you can hardly, you know, nobody knows. Is it 15,000? Is it 20,000? If we go to 30,000 students, does our infrastructure support, right? So all of those variables sometimes create these, these situations where we don't get to do our best,
1: and that's what I want
0: to see. You know, I want to see Maricopa. I, I just still believe that we're the finest organization around and that we have nowhere reached our potential and that we can reach our potential, but we need some stability in longer budgets. And I, and I think our current chancellor is working on those sorts of things. You know, let's get a three year budget together. You know, if people commit to something, it can't be for a semester. It just, it's too disruptive. You could not run a private business the way we run our stuff. It just, you just, you'd go bankrupt. You couldn't do it. And so I think some of the conversation that we have today is very encouraging on that front. You know, to see the vision, the broader vision that you're going to bring to the college and areas. And, and I really believe and like what you said about it happens in small chunks, you know, small steps, little victories. What's that saying? How do you eat an elephant one one bite, bite at a time, time, you know? And I love the leaders, the people that have influenced you, uh, I think, on a spiritual thing for me where we people are asking to put this territorial tag on their on their emails well if we're going to start doing that i'd like to see a little more uh, indigenous philosophies and thought which includes spirituality which includes consensus rather than majority rule i think that everybody should be seen as a leader i really don't like this whole the leaders are speaking now i don't like it that's that's so anti-community in my mind. And so I think there are room uh, for us to keep chipping away at our potential, but it's going to take new leadership as, you know, faculty. I'm making a speech, you guys, but as faculty and administrator, I know that, you know, as the years go by, people bump heads and they work together. But the main thing is we have the common goal in mind and, and I, like, I do like the stuff where uh, our current president, Lori Berquam, where we've talked a lot about forgiveness or, you know, these sorts of things. Like, people make mistakes, you know?
2: Vulnerability. Yeah. Being okay. able to be vulnerable with each other and accept that we had made mistakes, yeah. that we're all human, but we can move forward. Yeah. So vulnerability is, is a great thing, to be able to sit down at the table and have candid conversations about what we do. A minute ago you said, um, you know, some people like this person and some people don't. We're never going to please everyone. Some people are going to like me. Some people are not going to like me. Some people are going to like my style. Some people are not going to like my style. But it's the same in the classroom. Some students are going to love how I teach. Some of them are not going to like how I teach. Some people are going to like my how I make them laugh in class and people are gonna think that I am um, you know, just a clown in front of the classroom, right? So there's this thing. But one of the things that I also want people to know is that I am not a serious person, but I take my work seriously. Yeah. And um, that I wanna create consensus and that I want to bring that vulnerability to the table so that we, as a division, can work together. Yeah. Uh, and bring new products. You were talking about products. Uh, sometimes I don't like to talk about college or college students as, as a business because we are not. Some people keep saying that our students are our customers. Right. Uh, I, I do not like that. That's another pet peeve. Um, but I want to make sure, you know, in, this sounds very much like a Hallmark card. We're here to change lives. Right. And that is our product. To change students' lives. That is right. Very hallmark card, but that's what we do here. Yeah.
0: We empower them to change their own lives. I like that better. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Eddie Webb, we are here at the New Media Lab. Uh, We were having a conversation with our newly appointed dean. Uh, It's been an exciting time. Once again, I apologize for rambling on a little bit too much about my own opinions, but we wanted to have a conversation. And we really thank you for being here today. We always like to give our guests the last parting word. Anything you'd like to say to the community? If
2: you have not been to the campus, please come to the campus and see what we do. Walk, walk our spaces, see what our classrooms look like and what our programs can offer you. Um, as a newly visitor to Arizona, as a newly resident of Arizona, as any person here at the college, I am still learning about the wonderful things that we do, and I would like for people in the community to learn about the wonderful things we do here. So I want to thank you for your time and for letting me come and speak to you. Oh,
0: thank you. I want to thank everybody uh, in my dad's language. They say Don't We'll see you all again and uh, take care of each other out there. We are all we have.
1: Royalty Free Audio, Grinoline Dreams by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. You can find more of his work at incompetech.com. The Maricopa County Community College District, MCCCD, is an EEO-AA institution and an equal opportunity employer of protected veterans and individuals with disabilities. All qualified applicants will receive consideration for employment without regard to race, color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, age, or national origin. A lack of English language skills will not be a barrier to admission and participation in the career and technical education programs of the district. The Maricopa County Community College District does not discriminate on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, disability, or age in its programs or activities. For Title IX 504 concerns, call the following number to reach the appointed coordinator: 480-731-8499. For additional information, as well as the listing of all coordinators within the Maricopa College System, please visit maricopa.edu/non-discrimination.